And unlike Caleb Bunch, I don't have the luxury of sitting around all day and reading the Bible. I have secular responsibilities, and let me tell you, they have nothing at all to do with this book. Let me just tell you. Honestly, the only way I was able to complete the sermon was to sneak it in at work. In fact, I didn't just sneak it in. It's all I did at work. Every day, eight hours a day, I told my students, all 195 of them, to go away. Leave me alone. I'm busy. I mean, this is way more important than just teaching music. I mean, the only reason I even show up to work is to put food on my table. This... This is the only part of my life that really matters. And it has absolutely nothing to do with my career. Let me just tell you. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And please read along silently as I read aloud. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became a distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint nor any fault because he was faithful." And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Let us pray right now. Oh, gracious Father, we come to you the only way we can come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom you hear us. We thank you for this time and opportunity to open your word and to read what it says and to study it. And we pray right now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to us only that in which is in accordance with your word. Lord, if I've prepared anything in my notes that is not according to word or true, that you would have me not say it. I pray if I do say it, that you would have the people not hear it. 
I pray only that which comes from your spirit might be heard, believed, and obeyed. And we pray this in the name of your holy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, now before we move on, I need to make sure that you all knew that my introduction was meant to be sarcastic, right? Everyone understands that. In other words, for those who do not know me very well, I just can't seem to help myself. It just flows out of my mouth like when Brother Gideon shuts his eyes during a sermon, nods his head, and moans in agreement from his seat. I'm not going to imitate because I can't, I can't do it. Or when Brother Chris Katugno, and please pray for his father, stands up here giving the morning announcements and introduces himself as Chris Katugno, sinner saved by grace. You know what's going to happen. Give it enough time. Give Brother Gideon enough time and he will say the word intentional. The only difference is what they do or say is encouraging to the body. And as for me, well, according to my wife, it's just annoying. But just as long as you know that my intro was meant to be sarcastic, we can move on. Amen? We all know Pastor Caleb doesn't sit around all day and just read the Bible. That's silly. He actually sits around all day and reads different biographies of U.S. presidents. And that's the truth. But I digress. But I hope my introduction made a point. I hope it stuck with you. I hope certain things I said were a surprise or jarring because they were meant to be. I would like you to keep my intro in mind and prepare as we keep looking to God's word this morning, specifically in the life of the prophet Daniel. So Daniel chapter 6. You all knew the story before we read it. Because Daniel defied the king's injunction or his mandate, he was thrown into the lion's den. Now, and you know the outcome. We didn't read it this morning, but you know what's going to happen. God and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his miraculous power shut the lion's mouth and delivered Daniel from the evil plot of his enemies. Amen, yes, and amen. But the outcome, Daniel's deliverance, is not the reason we're looking at the story this morning. No, brothers and sisters, this morning we're looking at Daniel 6 because I want us all to discover and I want us all to consider what it was exactly that Daniel was doing in Babylon. Let me explain. What was Daniel, a Jew, a Jewish prophet, doing in Babylon? And more specifically, I want to know what business Daniel had being in the king's court in the first place. What was he doing in the king's court? In chapter 6, this morning, it's actually not Babylon anymore. It's, it's under Persian rule now. So uh, there's a Persian ruler. And now the king was Darius. But either way, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar for Babylon or Darius for Persia, Babylon was a long, long way from Judah. Not only in miles, but in worldview, in custom, and in religion. So what was Daniel doing in Babylon? Well, if you're a member of Gateway, you just spent the entire summer studying Isaiah, the prophet. So we all know that Babylon came in and conquered Judah and took the people captive back to their land. But for those of you who didn't spend the summer here with us at Gateway, here's a crash course. I mean, here's a real brief summary spanning roughly 850 years from Moses to Daniel. So buckle up your seatbelts. This is going to fly by. In roughly 1400 BC, Moses, the great Old Testament prophet, after giving God's law to the people, was pronouncing the blessings on the people. And the blessings would occur if the people kept the covenant. And he also pronounced the curses that would come upon them if they broke God's covenant. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 36, we read that if they break it, God will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. 
And later on in Deuteronomy 28, 64, we read, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. So the people commit themselves to the Lord and they, encounter the, uh, they enter the promised land under, under Joshua. Then when Joshua dies, they rebel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In other words, they do whatever the heck they want to do. Therefore, God in his patience first sends judges to save them from the surrounding nations that he himself sent to them to rebuke them. This goes on for roughly 300 years. So Samuel comes on the scene, Samuel the judge and the prophet. And when Samuel is old, the people rebel and ask for a king like the pagan nations around them had. But God was their king, but they wanted a human king. So Samuel reluctantly makes Saul and Jemite the king. So King Saul disobeys God, and God rips the kingdom from him and his family and gives it to King David from the tribe of Judah. King David, although the apple of God's eye, is nevertheless still a sinner. And due to his sin, especially involving Bathsheba, God divides the kingdom in the time following his son Solomon's reign. So now we have a divided kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, two tribes to the south, called Judah. Both king kingdoms have one evil king after another, with a few exceptions. So after all this, true to his warning and true to his word, and after hundreds of years of long-suffering and patience, God enacts the curses. He sends Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom, and then he sends Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom. So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon begins to take Judah into captivity, starting with the nobles and the educated youth, and one such youth was a boy named Daniel. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Daniel wound up in Babylon. But in light of all that history, I still ask you, what was he doing there? What was he doing there? What business did Daniel have being in the king's court in the first place? Well, we see that because of God's grace and favor, Daniel had what was known as an excellent spirit. Daniel could interpret dreams and visions, and he was also a prophet. So after interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2, Daniel was promoted. So a captive receives a promotion just like Joseph did when he was in Egypt. So I now ask the question... To what position was Daniel promoted to? What job did he have? Was it the Jewish population's high priest? No. Was it to state theologian? No. Was it to a Hebrew's religious lawyer? You see the advertisement on the uh, TV? Was he an uh, Old Testament scribe finding lost books and writing? No. We read in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, that the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. Amazing. Amazing. Now, just to clarify, the province of Babylon wasn't the whole empire. It was one of the three provinces of the empire, but it contained the capital city. It was a very, very strategic and important place. So then we see that Daniel 
with so much responsibility now, delegates administrative responsibilities to his three friends and fellow captives. You know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he himself, Daniel, remained in the king's court for 60 years. And we see God's continued blessing on Daniel over the next six decades. So like we said, Daniel was already made ruler over Babylon's wise men, and that must have been a pretty interesting club to be a part of. You have a believer in the one true God, and you have the magicians over to the side. You have Penn and Teller, and then you have a true miracle worker. And in chapter 5 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's son, King Belshazzar, planned to make him the third highest ruler in Babylon. And I say planned to because he never got the chance. Do you remember why? When Daniel saw the writing on the wall, there was a mysterious hand that appeared and was writing on the wall, literally. And the writing told him that Belshazzar would lose the kingdom and lose his life to the Persians. So even so, Belshazzar promised to reward him because he interpreted it. Daniel was correct, and because he was correct, Babylon was conquered by the Persians, and Belshazzar never got the chance to promote Daniel. But we see Daniel, in fact, did get a promotion after all, because God's will can never be stopped. Amen? And that leads us to today's chapter, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, now most likely an 80-year-old man, was put in charge by Darius the Mede, the Persian king. He's put in charge as the head of three administrators or commissioners or, or presidents who in turn govern 120 satraps or regional princes, but satraps sounds cooler. Regional princes. So Daniel has now moved up the food chain to second in command of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's right. He's no longer the assistant to the regional manager. No, he's the vice regent now. And that is what he's been doing there for six decades. That is the business he has being in the king's court. So Daniel, once a captive, is now the vice regent of the empire. This is his career. This is his nine to five. So in light of all this information, I come back to my sarcastic introduction. And I'm posing another question to you. Did Daniel have a secular career? Did Daniel have a secular career? Let's, again, quickly review his job description. Let's keep this in our minds. Daniel 2, he's ruler of the third Babylonian province, okay? He's head of the Babylonian wise men. Daniel 4, he's advisor to the king. He's compassionate, kind, and respectful, but he's advisor to the king. Daniel chapter 5, he's almost the third ruler in Babylon. And then Daniel 6, now he's second in command to the new Persian king. He's vice regent to the emperor, leading the two other presidents and overseeing 120 princes. And what is he overseeing them for? Well, according to commentators, to prevent loss from military revolts, to prevent tax evasion, and to prevent fraud. That's his job description. So I ask again, did Daniel have a secular career? Do you have a secular career? Do you have a secular job? Do you have a secular role or position in life? Well, before we can answer that, we need to find out what exactly it means to be secular. Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, which, by the way, changes every day now, but according to Webster's Dictionary, secular means not spiritual, 
Think about your answer. Not spiritual. Of or relating to the physical world and not the spiritual world. So that's secular. And therein lies our problem, the mention of the two worlds. A synonym, a synonym, a synonym, synonym for secular is the word profane. Caleb mentioned that last week or a couple weeks ago. So profane, the definition is relating to ordinary life, not religious and not spiritual. Do you see the problem again? Is there anything ever considered not spiritual in nature in some way, shape, or form according to the Bible? Is anything not spiritual? I say no. I say no. The words secular, profane, or common are all medieval terms centered on a false dichotomy or a false distinction between things that are secular and things that are sacred. Now, what does sacred mean? Sacred means dedicated or set apart for the service of worship of a a deity or just simply relating to religion. So secular is worldly, sacred is related to religion. So on the one hand, we have sacred, religious and spiritual, and on the other hand, we have secular, common or ordinary. And never the twain shall meet. Now please listen to what I am not saying this morning. I am not not suggesting that there is no distinction in the Bible between good and evil, between right and wrong, between holiness and unholiness, and between sin and righteousness. Okay, nor am I teaching that some jobs or professions cannot be set apart exclusively for the furtherance of the gospel. For instance, pastor. I believe seminary professor. Obviously missionary. These are clearly, specifically set apart for the spreading of the gospel. While others are not exclusively for that purpose in name or activity, such as plumber, School teacher, mechanic, bus driver. Furthermore, I am not, definitely not saying that all professions are noble and right in the sight of God. Please hear me on this. There is immoral work, such as racketeering, prostitution, selling illegal drugs, anything having to do with the New York Yankees. (laughs) Clearly, all these, except for the last one, or abominations to the Lord and should be avoided at all costs. Amen? In Romans 12, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us to discern what is the will of God and what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. And that implies there are things that are not the will of God, his prescribed will, not good and not acceptable. So there are things to be avoided. So let's be clear on that. All jobs are not created evil. Okay, But what I am speaking out against is the mindset of many Christians that certain things, certain activities, certain professions, and certain places are either sacred or secular. In other words, they're either spiritual or unspiritual. And I don't believe that. Remember my ludicrous introduction. Obviously, it was ridiculous. But think now in your heart, have you ever thought like that in your heart? When I mentioned, when I was speaking my introduction, there were nods of yes before you realized what I was really saying. It's true that according to the Old Testament, there were sacred items, holy items, things that were set apart, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the items in the holy place in the tabernacle and later in the temple. 
That was done to teach the Israelites and us about God's holiness and character and our sinfulness and limitations and the need for a high priest that would bridge the gap between God and man. That's why that was there. The substance was always Christ. Well, the Old Testament priesthood ended. It's over now, and it was not even in practice during Daniel's exile. So I ask you, what about 2021? What about today? Well, firstly, we know that for Christians, the separation between the holy God and the sinful man was bridged by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So in Christ, God tore the temple into from top to bottom. It started from him and came down. The sacred and the secular now meet. So there's no more need for Jewish high priest because the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has come and offered himself for us once for all. And we celebrated that truth this morning. It was the just for the unjust. Now we are just in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? And secondly, according to 1 Peter 2, all born-again believers ourselves are a holy and royal priesthood. We're all priests to our God. But I'm going to ask you a question. To what purpose are we a royal priesthood? Well, 1 Peter 2.9 says... It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see how this verse links the entire sermon together thus far? How it connects everything I've said? Too many Christians buy into the secular, sacred dichotomy when it comes to their vocation. And when it comes to their vocation up against the study of the word, gospel witness, evangelism, accountability, and the teaching of scripture. Hear me, it's not the elders' duties alone to do these things. In fact, if we want to follow this line of thinking to its logical conclusion, the only vocational duty of the pastor is to study the word, gospel witness, evangelism, accountability, and teaching the, scripture, teaching the scriptures, and it falls on one person at this time, Pastor Caleb Bunch. Good luck on that. Don't look at me. I'm just a high school music teacher. It's not my responsibility to come up here. Don't look at Steve Schultz. Uh, well, Steve is kind of tricky because he is the head, headmaster of Grace Christian Academy, quote, the only classical Christian school in all of New York City and Long Island, end quote. That's sort of sacred, right? Okay, Caleb and Steve, and let's throw Gideon in there because he is a paid youth minister, and he excels at preaching and teaching the word and leading the prayer meetings. So, okay, Caleb, Steve, and Gideon. They're spiritual in their work, and the rest of us are clearly not spiritual in our work. Amen? No. No one here would ever dream of saying that if we were in a conversation. In fact, look at all the ministries and committees here at Gateway that are wonderfully and capably and God-glorifyingly run by non-clergy who hold secular nine-to-five jobs. But that's not enough. We also need to stop dividing our lives into the sacred and secular categories. Remember, I'm not talking about holy versus sinful. Those are distinctions. But sacred and secular. You see, everything, everywhere, 
Every action, every thought is spiritual in some way and relates to religion in some way. Our ordinary life is actually spiritual life. Ordinary life is spiritual life. Romans 12 verse 1 states, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Was he talking to elders? He's talking to everyone. Every believing Christian, that's who he's talking to. So our bodies, our minds, our actions, all of us need to be living sacrifices Everything is spiritual worship. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Whether you're a pastor or a plumber, your entire life is spiritual sacrifice. Your entire life is sacred. It's set apart for the service of and the worship of the one true deity, the triune God. You are set apart for Christ if you're in him. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know who wrote that? The tent maker wrote that, otherwise known as the Apostle Paul. And in fact, he was making tents during some of his missionary journeys to support himself. He was working a nine to five. Here are some more New Testament examples. We have Zenos the lawyer that's mentioned in Titus 3. We have Onesimus the slave, uh, who actually Paul told to go back to Philemon to work. We have Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers like Paul. We have Simon the tanner. We have those who worked in Caesar's household, servants of Caesar himself, it says in Philippians 4. And we have Cornelius the centurion, which is a fancy word for a Roman soldier. All sacred people with secular jobs or roles in life. But every one of them, if they were in Christ, they were spiritual. They were maintaining a gospel witness. They were living sacrifices and they were royal priests, just like the prophet Daniel. Taken as a boy by force to a pagan land, rising up in the ranks of government, but whose true citizenship was not in Babylon or in Persia, but in Jerusalem, and ultimately in the heavenly Jerusalem, like you and I. All right, in the brief time that remains this morning, I would like to draw your attention to five things, to five things about Daniel's doings in Babylon, and then apply them to our doings today here in spiritual Babylon by way of four points of application. But first, let's look at the five things or observations I made in Daniel's life, and these are all going to begin with the letter P, Number one, Daniel was a president. Number two, Daniel was a prophet. Number three, Daniel was a predictable prayer. Prayer, he prayed. He was a prayer. Number four, Daniel was not profane. And number five, Daniel was a peaceful man. So number one, Daniel was a president. He was a ruler. He was an administrator. And he led a team, he was a team leader leading a team of people in a foreign land. But notice that his excellence was obvious and he ruled well. And we know he ruled well because in the text we read, none of his enemies had anything to charge him with other than his faith. They couldn't point to something he was doing at work that was wrong. 
They could only point to his belief in his God. You see, Christians should excel in our work. We should outshine unbelievers in our work ethic and our effort. We may not be more skilled in our abilities or gifted in our skills, but what we lack in talent, we should make up for in diligence. As Steve Schultz rightly says, we've surrendered the academy to the unbeliever because we've stopped being competitive in the schools, in the workplace, and in government. And he's right about that. Daniel, on the other hand, outshone those around him, and we can learn a lot from him. Daniel never shirked his responsibilities in the name of religion. He wasn't lazy. He didn't say, I can't come into work today because I have to go pray right now. He submitted to the authority God placed over him except when it violated God's will. And we'll get back to that. So rehash of number one, Daniel was a president. He was a leader who faithfully fulfilled his responsibilities at work because he did it before the Lord. Now moving on to number two, Daniel was a prophet. Daniel spoke God's truth even at the expense of his own safety. And that's what happened in, in chapter 6 this morning. This week, if you have time, take a few minutes and look at Daniel's record. Look at how he bravely yet lovingly counseled Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 and Belshazzar in Daniel 5 and how he told them some very hard truths about themselves and their own sins. Yes, he was a true Old Testament prophet because he heard from God directly. He met physically with the angel Gabriel and predicted the future with 100% accuracy, and we cannot do that today. Don't believe anyone if they say they can. But what we can do, because we possess the complete word of God, which contains Daniel's prophetic words, we can, like Daniel, kindly yet boldly speak God's truth to those who are around us. Amen? Daniel was a prophet because he spoke and lived the truth of the Lord. Observation number three, Daniel was a predictable prayer. He was a predictable prayer. He prayed early. He prayed often. He relied on his God in that ungodly place where he lived. That was obvious, especially when he would interpret or explain dreams and visions. He gave God all the glory every single time and pointed the pagans to the one true God. Daniel never went anywhere on his own strength. He prayed without ceasing. In the text today, we, we saw that he prayed three times daily with his window open. Now, remember what the text said. It said when he, when he, when he, when he heard that, um, you know, that the document had been signed, then he went into his upper chamber, and it, he hid under his bed and prayed. No, it doesn't say that. He knew the document was signed, so he went to his home, and he went in the closet and prayed. No, it doesn't say that. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says he went up to, the, to his upper chamber where there was a window, and he faced Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. And the point is, Daniel knew that the document had been signed, and then he did it. But if you read very clearly and carefully, you will see it said he did this as he had done previously. This wasn't a new thing. This wasn't a unique act of defiance. He didn't create an event on Facebook for a prayer rally revolt meeting. No, he had always done that. He always did that. He was consistent in his work, and he was consistent in his devotion to his God. 
even surrounded by unbelievers that hated Daniel and his God, they could not accuse him of anything except for exercising his faith. He created positive habits of praying, seeking God, and holding on to his identity as one of God's children. And this had been going on for a long time because it was part of who Daniel was. Oh, that we would be as predictable in our devotions. Amen? So Daniel was a predictable prayer. And that leads directly to observation number four. Daniel was not profane. He was not profane. Daniel did not compromise even though he worked for a God-hating, pagan, egomaniacal king. Chapter 1, he refused to eat the king's choice food. Chapter 4, although called king of the magicians, he never took the credit for his supernatural abilities. He always pointed to God. In chapter 6, he did not alter his praying regimen even after becoming aware of the king's mandate. He had, in the words of James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God because he kept himself unstained from the world. But he was in the world. Remember, again, I have to be clear that we know eliminating the sacred-secular dichotomy is not the same as eliminating the need for discerning right from wrong. It's not the same as, a need, as the need to, to distinguish between sin and righteousness. Those are just as important. I'm talking about a mindset. I'm trying to convey to you that there are no secular components of a Christian's life. There are no secular components of a Christian's life. Unfortunately, since we're still in these mortal bodies, there are sinful components, sinful components that we need to, by grace, put to death. But there are no secular components. Number four, Daniel was not profane. And finally, we get to observation point number five. Daniel was peaceful. He was peaceful. Even, the text says, when he was before the lions. Daniel 6.18 says that King Darius was the one in reality that didn't have any peace. We didn't read it today, but he was the one that was freaking out. He couldn't sleep. He fasted. He didn't eat. He fought hard to find a loophole in his law and attempt to save Daniel. But Daniel peacefully trusted his God. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what Daniel said to Darius as he was being led to the lion's den, but I wonder if it was similar to what his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said to Nebuchadnezzar when they were being cast into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to the golden image that was set up in the king's honor. Daniel 3, 16 to 18 recounts the story where it says, where their words were, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to answer you concerning this matter. Because he gave them a chance to, to get out of it, to, to recant. They said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Listen to this. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. Let that sink in for a minute. God is able to, and we, we believe he will. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship the image that you set up. They were peaceful. They were trusting faithfully even unto death. Oh, that we would exhibit this peace in our daily lives. Amen? So number five was Daniel was peaceful. Christians, we like Daniel are in a foreign land. I mean, our citizenship is not ultimately here. It's not even in Jerusalem, but it is in heaven. 
And our life is one spiritual life. It's not divided into compartments, sacred versus secular. We are being conformed into Christ's image day by day, trial by trial. We are being sanctified or set apart or made holy. We are being made holy. Therefore, we are sacred because we're set apart. Amen? So as application this morning, I have four areas in which we can immediately apply this message. Four areas. The first area is when we are alone. Yes, when we're alone, when no one's around. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Job 13 verse 10 says, God will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Deuteronomy 27 verse 15 says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. You see, all things are spiritual because all things are done before the eyes of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to which we must give an account. All things are spiritual, and it begins in the heart and the mind when we're alone, even when no one sees but God. The second area where we can apply this message is at home or with our family. Being a living sacrifice or being consistent or being sacred continues in the home. First one is to men. 1 Timothy 3, 4 states, A man, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? Now, in media context, this is for elders, okay? But I believe by extension, it's it's applicable to every Christian man that seeks to grow in the Lord. Men, manage, teach, lead with all dignity. Because you have one life, one mind, at home, in public, and with your family. To women... 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2 states, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. How hard this must be for female saints with unsaved husbands. But the Lord calls you to submit nevertheless, to submit to and respect him, even if by his actions and lack of faith he does not deserve it. The third area where we can apply this message is at work or in school. This is usually what we think about. This application point is where it all started for me as I prepared this message. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 2 kept invading my thoughts when I went to work because, to be honest, I struggled to stay focused at work because any I had, any spare moment before school, after school, my lunch period, I spent studying, which is okay. But I was tempted to say, okay, guys, I'll be out in a minute and continue. No. When the students come in, the book has to close because I need to do my job with integrity. But I was tempted. I was tempted to slack off. See, the sacred-secular dichotomy is so ingrained and it was so full force in my brain that it was hard to overcome it even when I was writing about it. Hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. 
Paul writes, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Colossians 3 verse 24 tells us that you are serving the Lord Christ. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, obey your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There is so much to unwrap here, and those passages were almost my entire sermon, but suffice it to say, do your job to the best of your ability all the time. Do your job to the best of your ability all the time. It doesn't matter if it's secular. It doesn't matter if your boss or teacher is unjust. Be subject to them and respect them. Think about it. How many times did David treat the evil King Saul with respect and honor, even call him the Lord's anointed at the very time when Saul was seeking to kill him? I always, when I read, I'm like, just, just do it. Just kill him. No, I will not lay my hand upon the Lord's anointed. But he was right. David had chances to kill Saul, but left the judgment up to the Lord. And what about the apostle Paul when he was on trial before the high priest? Not knowing that it was the high priest who was speaking, he criticized them, called them a whitewashed wall, and then what did he get? He got smacked in the face for it. But when he's told that this is the high priest, what does Paul do? He apologizes. I wouldn't apologize, but he apologized, and he submits, even though he was correct in his assessment of the high priest's character or lack thereof. Paul respected the authority. And this is difficult for Americans to understand. It really is. But it is the way of life for a living sacrifice or, or a representative of Christ on earth. So do your job just as it was unto the Lord because he's your true boss. And finally, we get to area number four, in society at large. And this might be the toughest pill to swallow in light of recent evil decisions made by our country's leaders. But Peter is clear. 1 Peter 2.13-16, to 16, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor the emperor. Now, do you know who the emperor was most likely when Peter was writing this? It was probably Nero. You know, the man who murdered his own mother. The man who murdered his first two wives. The man who burned Rome to the ground and blamed Christians for it. The man who burned Christians alive, wrapping them in tar and animal skins to give light to his parties. Yeah, let's honor that guy. But that's what it says. Christians, submit to and honor your leaders. In Romans 13, Paul tells us that the Lord God has appointed our leaders and then tells us to pay our taxes. Now, I have to qualify all preceding points and once again refer to the prophet Daniel. Okay? Remember, he didn't compromise his faith in his situation. He didn't say, well, I just need to follow what they tell me. And neither should we. I'm not saying that. We obey and submit as long as it does not compromise or deny our faith to do so. The hard part is determining whether it does or not. But that's why we have counsel. That's why we pray. That's why we have the Lord's word. But in every situation, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Acts 5.29 is an overarching rule in all we do when dealing with others, especially those in authority over us. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Peter said this very thing to the high council after being forbidden to preach the gospel. So the authorities forbid him to preach the gospel, and he said, I can't do that. 
They say, pay your taxes. He's like, okay, I'll do that. The same Peter told us to honor the emperor was the same man that said we cannot obey the emperor when he commands something that is sinful. So we are to submit to all authorities that God has placed over us except when they ask us or order us or mandate us to deny our faith. May God give us strength in these turbulent times. So, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, hear me. For Christians, there exists no place, no time, no situation in which you are not expected to act like a follower of Jesus Christ. There are no secular situations. You are witnesses while you are out evangelism and while you're at City Field, even when they're losing. You're expected to be a witness when you're on the cruise. You're expected to be a witness when you're on the missions trip and when you're at Disney World and when you are stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the southern state between exits 28 and 29 on a Friday night. That's a fiery furnace. Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we are in the world. We are in the secular world, but we are not secular. We are sacred. We are set apart for the service of worship of the one true deity, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Daniel knew this and was able to work and rule right in the belly of the beast, the godless Babylonian and Medo-Persian empire. He aided the kings in their leadership. You remember his job description? It wasn't to stop people from committing a sin against the Old Testament law. He wanted to stop committing tax fraud, which obviously fits into the Old Testament law. And along the way, to be an obvious witness to the truth of God, speaking the truth at the risk of his own life. And as we know, he was risking his life when he was thrown in the lion's den. He always put Jehovah first and relied on him for life and salvation. And later on in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would come in about 500 years. And then in verse 26, that he would be cut off or crucified. And we know that this prophecy came to pass again in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, I tell you what the apostles told their audience to repent and to believe the gospel. All this talk today about secular versus sacred might be interesting, it might not be. And all this talk about Israel and Babylon and Persia will do you no good if you do not have your sins paid for. Now either Jesus paid for them on the cross 2,000 years ago, or you will pay for them yourselves for all eternity in a place called hell. So I'm going to plead with you this morning. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, turn away from your sins. Turn away, namely, from your attempts to please God by your works. Admit to yourself and to God that you cannot save yourself. You are unable to pay for your own sins. Turn away from your sins and turn to God and run to Christ. He will never turn away anyone that seeks him in faith. Secondly, believe the gospel. Jesus Christ came to earth to pay for your sins completely, 100%. And it's all of grace. It's all of God. Put your faith in Jesus. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Turn away from your sins. Turn to God and run to Christ. Now I'd like to close this morning by sharing a story of a man, a doctor whom I've never met. Now I shared this before. I shared this at North Shore Baptist when I was serving there. 35 years ago, in 1986, I was 12 years old. 
And I had a paper route in my hometown of Mineola. Now I know the Hermans live in Mineola. My old friend Nick is here, he's from Mineola. I think Lee Denninger, Dunninger is from Mineola. So I'm a Mineola kid. And I had a paper route. And it was adjacent to Winthrop University Hospital. It used to be Nassau Hospital back then. And this one Christmas, I received this small pocket New Testament from a house on my paper route. Now, in reality, I would not be saved for another 10 years. By God's grace, on May 17, 1996, I received a new heart, repented of my sins, and believed in the gospel. Amen. But back in 1986, I was on a different path, one that would have led me to destruction apart from God's irresistible grace. So I received this New Testament with this inscription written in, inside cover. Dan's going to put it up. Uh, we love the handwriting. I wish I can, that's penned, write that. So I'm going to read it to you. This is what was inscribed in my Christmas gift. It says, Dear Mike, Thank you for faithfully delivering our papers. You are proving yourself to be a responsible, industrious, and hardworking young man. My husband used to do the same work years ago. This book tells the Christmas story, Luke 2, and holds the key to eternal life, John 3.16. God has a beautiful plan for your life. Christmas demonstrates God's love for you. It is Wonderful to trust him to guide you. For instance, he guided my husband to be a doctor. I doubt there is anyone who wouldn't want a doctor who would do all in his power but pray that God do even more. The future is before you. I don't cry. May God richly bless you. This reminds me so much of Daniel's example, especially when she wrote, I doubt there is anyone who wouldn't want a doctor who isn't great. No, who wouldn't do all in his power, but pray that God do even more. Dr. John Letieri, excelling in his field, relying on his God, and being a witness to Jesus. Just like Daniel. Please pray with me. Dear God, we come to you gratefully in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to earth to come, live a perfect life on behalf of your people, to die taking their sins upon himself for not staying dead but rising again and ascending into heaven where now he sits at your right hand interceding for his people. We thank you that he is coming again to take his church to be with him and to rule and reign forever and ever. We thank you that he's ruling and reigning now, that all authority on earth is already under his feet. We thank you that no one makes a decision, whether from the top of the chain or at the bottom, without your will and your allowance. Lord, I pray this morning as I prayed at the start of the message, I pray that you would have the people hear what is accurate from your word. I pray if anything that I did say or preach was not in accordance with your will, that it will be clearly and quickly forgotten. I pray, Lord, that we would live lives of, of, of consistency, that we would live lives free of hypocrisy, that by your grace we would live one holy and sacred life, even if our job description is considered secular. Dear Lord, we pray you do all these things to your glory and for the good of your church. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.